Hello and welcome to the most recent episode of the Human and Machine podcast. Um, if you have been listening to our series of podcasts, you would know that it is all about the industrial technology and manufacturing space in South Africa. Um, this is podcast number five. We were just discussing, it feels like it's been many more already. <laughs> this is podcast number five. Um, if you have been listening, thank you for the feedback and the comments. We, we do see those, uh, those listening numbers increasing. We really appreciate the feedback. Um, I'm here with my co-host, of course, Lenny. My name is Yaku. Uh, Lenny, podcast number five, unreal. Yeah, no, it's, it's great, Yaku. I'm, I'm kind of enjoying it. And I think um, we might be a little bit nervous for today's podcast. I, we've yeah. got, we really pulled out the big guns. <laughs> we've got a big heavy hitter here that we're going to interview. So very looking forward to, um, to the session that we're going to have. Yeah, I, do, I do feel a little bit, uh, a little bit intimidated by, by this episode, but we're really excited. So you would have uh, noticed over the last few few episodes that we've spoken a lot about industry 4.0 digital transformation <clears throat> and really what many people described as, as buzzwords um, and of course part of the discussion is the crucial role of adopting uh, an IOT or Internet of Things approach and more importantly a network and if you're following the trend in the industry you would see that the benefits are already being realized by <clears throat> by many businesses and that trend is definitely set to continue and I think Gartner predicts that by the end of this year, there will be an install base of around 20 billion, 20.4 billion IoT devices worldwide. What we have also um, <clears throat> heard from some of the conversations is that many of these IoT projects fail due to unpredictable costs. And, and in many cases, these, these projects have become non-starters. Uh, and obviously a major factor behind this and, and probably one of the biggest contributors to the cost per device is simply the amount of data being transmitted and how that is being handled. Exactly. And that is a cost that, of course, can be mitigated by choosing an efficient way of communicating between these devices and, and applications. And then, of course, in, into our industry euro, MQTT, which is uh, Message Query Telemetry Transport, which is really a, a lightweight machine-to-machine -machine messaging protocol, which uh, is obviously due to its very small code footprint and small message size, ideal for large-scale networks. So in this week's episode, we, we're super excited to speak with, uh, I feel like we need a drum roll, with, with Arlen uh, Nipper, who is firstly the president and CTO at Cirrus Link, um, very importantly, the co-inventor of MQTT, uh, and just a plainly industry legend. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah. Arlen, thank you, welcome, and uh, it's, it's so exciting to chat to you today. Well, thanks, guys. I really appreciate the opportunity. And, and really, you don't need to be intimidated. Let's just, uh, <laughs> we'll go into this and talk about all the cool things that we can do with MQTT, especially how it applies to the industrial Internet of Things. And I'm, I'm very pleased to see its progress and really looking forward to speaking about that today. Fantastic. And you, I mean, Arlen, you've been in the industry, I think, 42 years. <laughs> Um, so you've really, from, from your early days, I'd love to get a view of, of uh, I think you, you started off as a skater automation engineer in your early days. <clears throat> I'd love to get a view of, you know, maybe some anecdotes from what life was like back then and how, where we are today, that, that would be great. Okay. Sure. So interestingly enough, so I was an electrical engineering student at Oklahoma State and, um, about second year in, I'm going, man, this is boring. I, I, I got to get out of here. I'm going to do something else. <laughs> and on my way to my advisor's office, I saw a job posting and it said, looking for intern students for the summer at Amoco Oil Company. 
uh, Amico, that was before BP bought them. <laughs> and they were located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So instead of quitting, I signed up for the, the internship. And so I show up at my first day at Amico and I said, okay, what am I going to do? And they go, well, Arlen, we've got this new department over here. It's called the Microprocessor R&D Lab. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> this was in 1976. And so that summer, I still remember, I got to wire wrap an RCA 1802 microprocessor. It was the first ever CMOS microprocessor. It ran at 800 kilohertz, and we had 2K EEPROMs that we would write machine language, compile them on the IBM mainframe. The IBM mainframe would then burn the code on the EEPROM. I would take the EEPROM, plug it into my circuit board, see if the program would run, and then rinse and repeat. Wow. But and I mean, that's the kind of hardware that would typically be lifted into the building with a, with a hoist or a lift. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so after that summer, I came back and I said, look, I know exactly what I want to do. So I basically... Uh, kind of concentrated on digital side of electrical engineering, got a minor in computer science. And then coming out of Oklahoma State, the Coke brothers, Coke Oil, had just started. And so I got a job with Coke Oil. And they were just building a refinery in central Oklahoma okay. and building the pipelines down to Texas to deliver ethane to the plastic markets. So nice thing about Coke, uh, you could do anything that you want. So over the course of building those pipelines, I got to do everything from run the ditch witch, put conduit in the ground, connect <laughs> wiring to- You, you would probably have to explain what a ditch witch is. <laughs> yep. Oh, the ditch witch, is, that's what you dig your, your ditches in the ground to put your conduit in. <laughs> exactly. There's, there's nothing, nothing computer or IT related to that. <laughs> nope. Nor- is there, you know, setting a 5,000 horse electric motor, connecting it to a centrifugal pump, but then taking and running the wires from the, the motor to the Toshiba vacuum tube starters. And then uh, 1978, Modicon had just come out. That was the first year for Modbus protocol. And I got mm -hmm. to learn how to program a Modicon 484 and then connect the Modicon 484 to an RTU and connect the RTU to a Bell 202 modem that ran at 300 baud. And then all of that went back to our SCADA host system, which was running on a PDP 1144. Wow. So over the eight years that I worked for Coke, I got to put in a complete uh, pipeline SCADA systems, got to learn all of the, the protocols, legacy protocols of the 1970s, um, put in tank farm automation systems, truck loading systems. So just a lot of general purpose um, experience in the industrial world. So after that, um, I was one of the co-founders of a company called Arcom Control Systems. And what we did was we built embedded computers, but not just embedded computers, they had to do something. So we manufacture protocol converters. So now we're in the, in the 80s and we had all of these customers that had protocols going all the way back to the 70s. So we had a very good business in building protocol converters for the oil and gas water and wastewater electric utility market. Until obviously standards so, like Modbus. <clears throat> yes. So we would take all these crazy protocols that nobody's ever heard about, like uh, Westac and Redac and Perk 22 <laughs> and Tano, and we would convert those to Modbus. And life was great, but you have to realize is that 
in the mid-1990s, a really disruptive thing happened in the United States in that AT&T was our primary communication provider for all of these wide area networks. Right. Well, they got deregulated. And within the course of about two years, our whole multi-drop lease line uh, infrastructure just kind of fell apart. So guess what happened? The VSAT guys, the VSAT guys stepped in. So now we had GE SpaceNet, Galat Scientific Atlanta, AT&T Tritum. They all had very small aperture terminals you could set out at your tank farms or your booster stations. So that started to be adopted, but guess what? Everyone had their own proprietary transport protocol, mm. right? So now we had a double whammy. We had proprietary protocols. You had to wrap them in proprietary transports, but so Rolling up to that is that 1998, Philip 66 got the first TCP IP based VSAT system. Now, what you have to realize, Yako, is that in the 90s, I mean, if I went into a SCADA department and said the word TCP IP, really nobody knew what I was talking about. Yeah. Because everybody was RS-232. Yep. So Phillips looked at this and they go, Arlen, you know, this is very expensive. Uh, we're polling over the VSAT. It's got long propagation delays. We want more data. We want it faster. We don't want to pay more. And we've got an IT department, and they're using this IBM product called MQ Series, and it uses a technology called PubSub. Now, if you think about what we were doing in the protocol converter business, it really was PubSub. It's just that the subscription was implicit to that SCADA host system. Hmm. So, we got, IBM was, was working with Philips, Arcom was working. So I got to work with a, an IBM fellow. His name is Andy Stanford Clark, and he was the co-inventor of MQTP. <clears throat> so what we did in about six months is we took this huge uh, messaging structure that IBM had originally and, and the way that their PubSub worked, and we smashed it down and we smashed it down and we looked at things like state awareness and that was the, the original version 3.0 uh, version of MQTT was released in 1999. And the genesis of it was for a mission critical real-time control system. So that's what's ironic to me, uh, Leonard Nyako, is that it's almost come full circle. It yes. started as an industrial uh, focused transport it was adopted heavily by IT as we see today, and now it's come back full circle to where we're getting it reestablished out in the operational world. Yeah, fascinating. We actually spoke about it a few episodes ago about that exact point. So really it was, um, I mean, it was an opportunity that was born out of like most other in, in innovations and being innovative out of, out of just a need to make better use of new infrastructure and new other technologies. And there was the birth of MQTT. It's, it's, uh, it's incredible. Uh, it, it doesn't feel like it should be that long ago. Exactly. I mean, uh, that, I think that's the scary part about it is, I mean, we're talking about the 90s here and a lot of people that's probably listening to us probably go, well, they've only heard about it recently, right? So yeah, yeah it is quite scary. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and, and it was, again, as you can imagine, let's put this in context. IBM were the, at that time, were the only people that had MQ series and MQ series was a $600,000 piece of software. And you had to get that just to get that little MQTT broker that was at the bottom of that. Mm -hmm. So, but what happened is that uh, several things. First, 
Andy and I worked very hard for, on two things. One is to get MQTT through a standards body. Okay. Yeah. So we, we, it's in two standards bodies now and, and to get the Eclipse PAHO project set up so that there could be a community where anybody that wanted to implement MQTT could go to and get started. And that is the PAHO project on the Eclipse Foundation. So slowly. So you gave it away. We gave it away. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I tell the funny story. Andy and I literally had the first version of MQTT up and running in about six months. It took us 18 months negotiating with the IBM lawyers to make it open. Because remember, 1998, IBM wasn't in the, they weren't in the game of open source at that time. But had we not worked so hard to make it open originally, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Absolutely. The world would have, the landscape would have looked very different. Definitely very different. I, I, I wanted to just quickly, um, uh, MQTT in terms of IoT, we're using a lot of TLAs, a lot of three-letter acronyms today. Uh, but MQTT with regards to the industrial internet um, of things, obviously um, that interoperability that we that that you mentioned um, makes it a little bit difficult in the industrial space. Um, and I think that was probably the the birth of something called Sparkplug, uh, which you you would probably have to maybe tell us a little bit more about, and especially our listeners where that fits in. Okay, well let, let's wrap back. So. Um, my partner, Chris, and I started Sirius Link six years ago, basically to focus on industrial applications of MQTT. And we were working on a project. Our first big customer was Plains Midstream, which is one of the largest uh, pipeline companies in Canada. And we were working with a, a product from, it's now owned by Aviva, but at the time it was Valmet, was called Oasis DNA. And what people may not realize, even, even Schneider may not realize this, is that they had the first ever MQTT base SCADA system. Because when we did that system for Philips 66, well, that SCADA host system had to talk MQTT. So literally, Oasis DNA has had MQTT in his Omnicom protocols. That's incredible. Since I didn't know that. It's just I mean, that's, that, that's obviously very, very prevalent to the oil and gas space. I mean, that yes. was the birth of it, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was the birth of it. So that, so that was the, the other issue. So here we're working with planes, and we had no tools. It was just a black box. And I needed some tools to be able to help the customer see messages, validate, you know, our process variables, things like that. So I was looking for a platform and somebody said, Hey, Arlen, have you seen this, this product called ignition? I said, no, I've, I've never heard about it. So now we have to tell the story of, well, one of the uh, integrators that I was working with called Travis Cox at inductive and said, Hey, you need to, uh, can you set up a meeting with Arlen? So I flew to Folsom. I think this was four years ago-ish, um, and had a meeting, an all-day meeting with Travis. And Travis and, and Colby and the team, they go, this is pretty cool. Uh, Arlen, here's an SDK. And so I took that SDK, flew back to Kansas City, and in a few days I had a working prototype of our first ever product called the MQTT Engine. Now, so the story is, is that MQTT never had an appropriate platform for people to see how good it was until Ignition came along. 
So I, I blame uh, Don Pearson and Travis and Colby and Carl for not coming up with ignition 20 years earlier so we could have <laughs> leveraged MQTT earlier. I think we all feel the same way. <laughs> <laughs> um, gonna, sorry, at yeah. that point, did you then see the adoption of MQTT moving a little bit away from just the, the kind of oil and gas pipeline kind of industry into more in, industrial sectors as we see today? Do you think yes, that, that was kind of the, the splitting was, road of, of that, where that That was a defining moment. Yes. Yeah. That was the defining moment when we could get it into a platform that was already across all these other verticals. All of a sudden, the exposure went from uh, oil and gas, water and wastewater, you know, wide area SCADA. All of a sudden, then it started to encompass all of the verticals that, that inductive were in. Now, Having said that, that was the first version of MQTT engine, and we started going to conferences, and we started seeing that, you know, the common denominator, you know, the biggest common denominator with IBM Watson IoT, uh, Google Cloud Platform, AWS IoT Core, Azure IoT Event Hub, is they all use MQTT. And the manufacturers out there, the Hilsters, the Opto22s, the Moxes, the Advantex, they were all talking about MQTT, but as I looked around, everybody was doing it different. So the beautiful thing with MQTT is you can publish anything that you want on any topic. So Janie Garage Door openers use it, Roomba vacuum sweepers use it, uh, uh, Facebook Messenger use it. That's the beautiful thing of it. But when you get into a particular vertical, you know, you've got to start setting some standards. So what we did is the team at CirrusLink and all my developers, and we've all been using MQTT for the last 20 years. I said, look, guys, let's take, you know, best practices, lessons learned, and let's write a specification that will help standardize that. So Sparkplug is a specification, and a lot of, I tell people it does not change MQTT at all. Mm -hmm. It does three simple things. It defines a standard topic namespace that we can all agree on that makes sense in the industrial sector. Number two, it realizes that we need to keep MQTT lean and mean. So although the cloud providers and everybody were starting to use JSON very prevalently in sending data around, you know, we're still constrained. In our world, bandwidth is neither free nor unlimited. Very and much so. start taking PLC registers, RTU registers, and flow computer registers. And if you do all of those in JSON, all of a sudden your messages get huge and you can't afford that with low bandwidth on cellular or VSAT or spread spectrum radios or whatever. So the second thing we did in Sparkplug is we took a very prevalent technology called Google Protocol Buffers and we designed the schema to efficiently encode process variables binary and put them in the payload so we've got a topic namespace we've got a payload definition and then the last thing that that the spark plug spec states is state because a lot of people read a lot of people like mqt oh i can publish this i subscribe to this but you have to realize that in a real-time control system you've got to have state no control no real SCADA engineer is going to trust the system that I tell him, oh, yeah, the, the PLC will publish a register when it changes, unless yeah. I know that device is out there. 
And that is that death certificate that Andy and I built into NQTT so that we have continuous session awareness for all of our remote sites. So let's take Philips 66, for example. They've been running their pipeline infrastructure for 21 years on MQTT. They have 5,000 Allen Bradley PLCs, 1,200 flow computers, 500 truck terminal and tank farm systems, but they know the state of all of those edge of network devices in real time. So, they, that, sorry, that they, is the intrinsic differentiator when it comes to yep. industrial IoT. Yes, that is. Hmm. So I always be very careful here in that we've got OT MQTT brokers that care about state, and then we have IT MQTT brokers that eh, they don't care so much. Cool. Alan, I think you, you also um, hit an important topic there about obviously you're using the, the Google protocol buffers to really package this, this small amount of bandwidth kind of utilization of MQT is really, really bandwidth efficient. Um, another thing that, that, that also is quite interesting is, is the difference between other type of polling, normal polling protocols and, and the way that MQTT is also different from that to also help and alleviate band, bandwidth. Such requirements. as OPC UA, for example. Exactly, yes. Okay. Um, right. And well, that's the, the notion that I only send when I need to send. Mm. Right. Yeah. Well, typically what we've seen, guys, over the last uh, 20 years that we've been doing this, um, kind of, you know, rule of thumb is that if we replace any poll response SCADA system as we migrate it towards pure MQTT for the same amount of information at the same update rate, we see an 80 to 95% bandwidth reduction. That's massive. Now, That's massive. In 1998, that meant cost savings in, in your communications. In 2020, that means that's 80 to 95% more of that stranded data that's out in the field that you can bring back over the same bandwidth. Correct. I see, and I see we do, in, especially in the age we're living in now, is it, it's so easy these days to get a device online. It's so easy just to... And to, it should be, wide inclusion. Exactly. Yeah. And we do see that that adoption of more and more data and to get that data and to start historizing and to collect that data is becoming a big player in the market. Yeah, right. cheaper networks, cheaper devices. Exactly. But, but um, remember, remember the three tenets, though, that, that both SiriusLink and inductive automation preach uh, from day one, is that forget about, forget about MQTT and all this other stuff. In fact, I, I love uh, Todd Ansinger, who is the... Um, head IoT executive for Chevron, and he's on the Sparkplug working group. His slide has men in black with the, the mind eraser. And he says, forget <laughs> everything that you know about SCADA. Yeah. How would you want it to work today? Yeah. So the tenets are, in, in today's world, we should look at connecting devices to infrastructure, not to applications. So decouple. Exactly. Yep. Number two provide a single source of truth for all process variables. Number three, remember, we're in the world of operations, so I need to show Mr. Operations Manager a better, faster, more scalable, more available, more uh, redundant operational system first and foremost. Because if I can't show that on the plant floor, at the pipeline, at the solar farm, then forget about, I, forget about digital transformation, 
they're still going to put in poll response. They're going to have these, these silos of data. So we're never going to get there unless we think differently about how we architect our overall system. Yeah. And that approach. Exactly. And I, I think we've, we've been stuck in a, in a, in a, in a, in a mindset of, you know, the typical old automation pyramid, if I can call it that with the different layers and I have to jump from layer X to or layer zero to layer one to layer two, to get my integration all the way up to my ERP or my business systems. And I think with this broker centric kind of topology that we can now employ, it's hundred percent right. You take the mind, the mind eraser, you erase what you've learned about that kind of hierarchy and it's a complete different ballgame. It's easier said than done for a lot of industry folks, eh? I know. <laughs> just, yeah. a, just a familiarity. And, and this is how we have done it and, and probably always will do. Exactly. <laughs> um, I, I quickly wanted to maybe just get a comparison. When, when we're talking about um, adoption in the industrial sector in comparison to other industries and verticals, what, is, what does that look like? Is there, is, there an, is there an earlier adopter versus a laggard, depending on industry um, or use? Is one catching up to the other? Uh, what does that comparison look like at the moment between industrial versus other industries and verticals? Well, again... And can you differentiate them so easily? Sorry to interrupt you. Can you now probably today differentiate or split them so easily? Maybe it's all, all one supply chain nowadays. Well, what we found out is that, it, to, to your point earlier, yes, it, the, the genesis of MQTT was in the oil and gas market, and, and for all the right reasons. And then, then when we got the modules into ignition and that became available, the oil and gas industry was very, very quick to start picking that up for all the right reasons. But at the same time, um, um, you know, through all of the integrators that work um, with the ignition platform, all of a sudden, you know, we're looking at, we had an an application come in from pulp and paper, and then logistics have just gone off the chart here lately. And then um, the the, uh, um, food and and beverage uh, industry starting to pick it up. And then, you know, solar uh, farm monitoring starting to come up. So all of a sudden, I can say that we're, we've got MQTT solutions across every vertical that are in all the charts that Ignition shows as far as their customer base. So the adoption has been fantastic. And then, you know, we'll start talking about how do we leverage this into that next step where a customer, you know, now he's got an MQTT infrastructure. And the, the really the cool thing is that you build your OT infrastructure to be IT ready. What I'm, you know, all of these things that um, people are looking at cloud and we're all starting on these digital transformation projects and we're already hearing they're failing, they're failing, they're failing. Hmm. And I think there's several reasons for that, that we can go into, but we've got to get our, we got to focus on OT. It's not IT down to OT. It's providing OT with the tools and the technology to be cloud ready when they, when they want to move that direction. And, and typically in the OT space, you are talking about, historically, you're talking about equipment and devices that were built to last forever, number one. Number two, not built for being online. Um, and, and we see it in South Africa, and we always jokingly refer to the, to the scenario that we have of IT versus OT. 
Um, and we, we actually had a few, uh, on, on, on a few of the recent episodes of the podcast, we spoke with a few, with an end user specifically that uh, spoke about that a little bit. That divide has shrunk as a result, and, and it's be definitely becoming one more cohesive team now as a result of, 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 of the introduction of these new technologies. I, I agree. I, I see that daily now, that now we're, and that goes back to my, but, you know, we, we start thinking about this, that goes back to that single source of truth tenant, right? I want to get a piece of data. I don't want Modbus register 40,012 with a value of 17. Uh, and that's always my joke, right? Is that what do we do today? We engineer a system. We, we get Modbus register 40,012. It comes up to the dashboard. And what do we do? We double click on it and we edit it to give it context. And we give it engineering units. We give it engineering ranges. And we say, oh, it's, it's a zero to 4095. We're going to have to scale it to zero to 100 somethings. Those somethings are going to be kilopascal. And then when another application wants it, they got to start over and they do it again. And another, and what I see is that people are using our uh, injector modules. We have modules for Amazon, IBM, Google, and, and Microsoft where we can take and publish process variable data into data lakes. But what I'm figuring out is we're kicking the can down the road because now this customer's got a terabyte of data in a data lake, and now we gotta we gotta hire. A, a system integrator to get it out of that data lake and do something interesting with it. Yeah, and try and bring, so, try and make something useful context out of it. Right, and and then the CFO is coming down after twelve months. The CFO is coming down to operations and say, "What are you guys doing?" And operations said, "Well, you know, we had a big executive meeting. You guys wanted all the data, operational data in the cloud, so we put it in a data lake." So <laughs> then the CFO goes, "Okay, well, who's using this?" Well, oh. Uh, Mr. CFO, we really haven't got the tools to pull out of the day lake to take Modbus register 40,012 because we can't figure out what it is. <laughs> We're still not sure. So I will have to say, um, if, if you're, you or your listeners uh, saw a pretty important announcement last week from Amazon, and they yes. just uh, launched a new service called SiteWise. <clears throat> And SiteWise is a service that Amazon has that lets you build a machine model. Finally. Now I can define a CNC machine. I can define a centrifugal pump. I can define whatever machine that I've got out there. I can build a data model. So uh, inductive automation and SiriusLink worked with Amazon while they were developing this so that now, uh, I, and, and, and we can announce this today, now we can use spark plug coming from ignition the, on the birth message going into IoT core. It knows how to build a machine model in sitewise. Then we can populate the process variables of that model using D data messages. So imagine this. Imagine you've got a customer that has a perfectly uh, great ignition system in the factory. And he wants to start on his journey to digital transformation. Mm. Now, literally, all he has to do is install a transmission module, take and build the UDT of the machines that he wants to represent in Amazon, point it at their MQTT broker, and in less than a minute, he'll have models and data in Amazon. 
That's impressive. That's very impressive. That's incredible. You, um, um, I've, I've made a note here, um, just on what you spoke about earlier in terms of uh, typically how to get started. Um, so when we're talking about IoT and IoT projects, can you maybe share some, some of the real-world use cases where, uh, where MQTT really has, has, has sort of sh shone and, and, and proved its worth and how you typically at SiriusLink, how, how you engage with customers um, wanting to embark with IoT and IoT. There's obviously many different ways to skin a cat and very often those requirements come from top down in the form of a business case or simply just the want and need to connect as many things as possible. What does is, what is your approach look like typically when, when, you, when you look at these projects? Where do you start? Well, uh, many, well, first of all, the customer has to realize that they want to take that step. So what they'll do is that they've probably, they're either working with an a, um, integrator that is, knows Ignition and knows all the tools and knows about the MQTT technology, or that more, more and more they're working with, you know, like I said, Amazon or Microsoft, and they're going, well, wait a minute, there's this MQTT thing that you've got. How do we take advantage of that? So, you know, on the one side, I will tell you that water, wastewater, uh, mining, um, um, anything that's wide area SCADA, it's kind of a no-brainer because they already realize that if I can save 80 to 95% on my cellular, my VSAT, my radio, I can get more information, I can get it faster, then that, that's all the proof point right there. But then you go to manufacturing and you go, well, Arlen, where does that make sense? Well, mm -hmm. what we're seeing is that people have factories where they are burning up their internal networks. Yes, they've got high speed networks, but they want to, for their MES system, they want this one, they want this digital state and they want to catch it within one second. And so what are they doing? They're polling at one second. Well, what we're seeing is that they are taking these factories and knocking them down into cells so that we can put ignition edge right by the, the area that they want to watch high speed. And it can sit there and pull that digital state at 250 milliseconds, but only publish it when it changes. Mm. Now, the other thing in the factory is that factory networks go down. MES systems don't like gaps in their data. Mm. So one of the other huge advantages using the Sparkplug specification is that we've now got the ability for storing forward. So for everything that I've talked about, if our network goes down, we still have objects, these spark plug objects that are process variables with their timestamp, with their engineering units. So I can just queue those up. And now when my MQTT broker comes back up online, my system, my network comes back up, I can take all those historical process variables and republish those with the historical flag set to true and do backfill into my uh, time series database. And I think, Alan, a, a big thing with that as well is we've, we've made the example of a state that changes on the, on the machine that's being monitored, that's now being sent to potentially an MES solution, but that data is now available for any potential other application that also requires that data and not increasing the bandwidth requirements. It's not another system that's now also polling for the same state value just via a different mechanism that nobody even knew about. Um, it's really decoupling that and becoming this one broker central kind of architecture where not just one piece of application can get that data, 
but it's now available to anybody that's subscribed to that topic. And I think yeah. that's also a, a key thing to understand is that it opens up this sharing of information to so many different applications that, that we struggled to do in the past because of the way that we need to Sorry. integrate and, and have that individual silos of integration. Yeah, a very good example of that, Leonard, is Canary Labs. Yes. So uh, Canary, uh, uh, looking at the oil and gas market, talking to customers, and they had several very large customers. They, they said, well, how are we gonna get the data? And the manager for this large oil company said, well, hey, we've got it, it's all right here in our MQTT, so you need to do spark plug and just go in and automatically discover all the tags and put those directly into Canary. So now we've got ignition setting there, we've got Canary Lab setting there, and we have a system that is, we plug them in, in 10 seconds they learn every tag, all the engineering units, all the engineering ranges, all of the properties on every tag in ignition, and they're done. So we have self-learning systems now. And, and, and Arlen, I, I always, um, I've, I've seen a few of the, the webinars, I see some of your, your posts about the scale and just you talk about things happen and in a minute it's available. And in 10 minutes, all of these things just appear. Um, it, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was a few weeks ago. I think I think you had a, a demo, a, a virtual demo. I think it was a few few million, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So maybe just give the, the the listeners kind of an idea that when we talk about one tag, it, it's not stopping there. The scale of this and and the birthing of devices, it's quite impressive when you see your live demo of how many what, devices. What is that scale and what is that capability? It's just comes alive, massive, and yeah. start birthing well, the data. So so remember what what we did in the spark plug specification is remember the first thing I said is that we define a standard topic namespace that anybody, so that Canary Labs, um, Ignition, and, and I will mention it here, get, you know, the other big company that's jumping on the spark plug bandwagon is Aviva. So, you know, we have a lot of, of companies manufacturing, signal fire manufacturing sensors do spark plug native. Uh, Opto 22, all of their IO equipment does spark plug natively. So we're starting to get this whole ecosystem of interoperability, if you will. So the demo that I do is that I literally have, uh, in, in my lab, I've got 43 OEM devices. I've got Opto, I've got Moxa, I've got, uh, you name it, I've got it, right? And they all are running Ignition Edge or uh, Sparkplug B or Sparkplug natively. So then I've got another properly simulated 2,000 PLCs. And all of this stuff is, is connected into multiple MQTT servers. Um, you know, probably beyond the scope of this, but, you know, redundancy and high availability, you know, it's the old keep it simple, stupid principle is that you just add more MQTT servers. Yeah. So the demo that I do is I have a, a ignition instance that I've installed from scratch. So it doesn't know anything. I've got 2000 devices. I've got 200,000 tags all those tags are changing from one to five seconds. And then I plug MQTT engine, which is the module that runs on ignition that knows MQTT on one side, and it knows how to create folders and tag structure inside of ignition on the other side. So what I do is I plug into our infrastructure and in 50 seconds, we learn all 2,000 PLCs, 
all 200,000 tags, with every tag, all 200,000 tags, we learn their engineering units, their engineering ranges, any custom properties that you've got on that tag, and you are ready to start using that data. Now, yeah. if Canary Labs was there, they would also plug in, and in that same 50 seconds, they would learn those 200,000 tags as well. And if we wanted that to go up to Amazon, let's say to this new SiteWise service, you know, I don't know if it's going to scale to 200,000 quick, that quickly, but th that's my point is we've got, we're plugging all this into infrastructure, not into applications. No, that, that's, that's incredible. That's incredible. And I think sometimes we forget that it's not just the process variable. And I think that's a very valid point. It's all the metadata and all the engineering properties that goes with that. And I think that's just what makes it so much more impressive. Right, and, and what you have to realize, Leonard, is if, if you're using Ignition Edge, you know, for that brownfield equipment that's out there, and your engineer goes out and they put a new transmitter, a new 4 to 20 milliamp transmitter on it, and it has a different range, so now he goes into his designer in Ignition, he double clicks on that tag, and he says, now, instead of this being, you know, 0 to 4095 is 0 to 100, it's 0 to 250 kilopascal. As soon as he saves that, it republishes that tag. So everybody that subscribed to that was now informed in real time. Oh, hey, Leonard, they just changed the engineering scaling on that one process variable. Yeah. And I think, and I, and I, and I like that, that all systems, and, and I think that's yes. the reason. Everybody that subscribed just has that new data available, and that, that's really impressive. Absolutely. Awesome. So you, you're effectively reducing all these layers of technology and integration that you typically would have had in between. Exactly. Oh, absolutely. And, and really, again, you know, we have this mindset. It, we have, we've got a 40-year mindset that, you know, I see people building out SCADA systems the same way I built out that system for Coke Oil in 1978. <laughs> right? I, I mean, we, yeah. we really haven't we haven't progressed much when we, when we think about SCADA. For some reason, we've got this mindset and we're not taking advantage of TCP IP the way the Internet of People did. And if we've got to. I mean, my, in my opinion, in the, the Internet of People took off because of two things. There was a transport out there that was free. That was, everybody knew it's called HTTP. And, you know, yeah. bulletin boards were starting to use it. And then somebody came along and said, hey, why don't we define what is in that HTTP transport? We'll call it HTML. And guess what? The Internet of People exploded. Yeah. Now, for the, I, in my mind, for the Internet, for the industrial Internet of Things to explode, we need a transport just like the Internet of People. And that already is dominant. It's already established that MQTT is the dominant IoT transport. But we need, we need that HTML part of it, and that's Sparkplug. Yeah. And on maybe that, that leads into the, the next um, little bit of a discussion point is, is the Sparkplug user group. Um, can you maybe tell us a little bit more about the Sparkplug user group, um, who's currently involved with it, and, and what, what kind of is the, the purpose of that user group, uh, especially with the Sparkplug um, protocol? Okay. Well, you know, three years ago, uh, when... Um, SiriusLink first thought about the idea of Sparkplug, we put it up on our GitHub site and we told everybody that it was open and it was free. You could download the spec, 
You can download reference implementation code that we had written in C, Java, JavaScript, and Python, and it was all on our, on our public GitHub. But then customers started asking the hard question, and the first one was Chevron. And so we're on a call with, with, Ignit, with inductive automation, and um, Todd Anslinger is the executive at Chevron for global, for all of automation for Chevron. And he's saying, Arlen, who owns this? And, well, it's, it's public, you know, it's free. No, no, really, Arlen, who owns this? Now, let me go back to my, what I said about Andy and I getting um, um, MQTT into the Eclipse Foundation. So I called Mike Malinkovich, who's the executive, the, the CEO of, of the Eclipse Foundation. I said, Mike, what if we contributed all of the intellectual property for Sparkplug to Eclipse. So two years ago, that's exactly what we did. So um, now SiriusLink don't own it. All of the IP, the spec, all the representation code is owned by the Eclipse Foundation. So then we wanted, we didn't want SiriusLink just to go start because we had all this customer feedback of, hey, wouldn't it be cool if Sparkplug did this? Or wouldn't it be cool if Sparkplug did that? Well, I didn't want to do that in a vacuum. I wanted to do that under the auspice of having an organization where we could all talk about it. And that was the Sparkplug users group. It was kicked off uh, here a couple of months ago. And the founding uh, members of that are Chevron, O-Ring, Canary Lab, CirrusLink, and Inductive Automation. Now, I would invite everybody listening to this podcast to uh, Google Eclipse Sparkplug. You'll find the information and join the Slack channel. Uh, participate. See what we're doing because what we're going to do is we're going to evolve Sparkplug specification, but we're going to do it within this working group so that everybody can become involved. So we've invited Aviva and Rockwell and, and Microsoft and, and everybody else. Now, you know, organizations tend to be, you know, funny about know which thing they join yeah. but you know this is the um the vehicle that we're going to mature spark plug it's already adopted and, and the, the the cool thing is that it's already out there it's not like a pie in the sky oh if we come out with this spec it's we're going to refine the spec through the spark plug users group yeah and, and that's so important i mean if you want to see any kind of rapid growth and inclusion of ideas and just progression on any kind of tech or product. I think the inclusion and the and opening that up to as as many different folks as possible is a very key part of that. Yeah. Um, I love the fact that some of you know some that all of these vendors are involved, um, and the world has also changed for them. I think the the introduction of of tech is always aims to improve a process or enable a human being. That that's always the the, the driving force behind some of the tech and some of these very large vendors. You know, they, they've had a specific technology, they've had a specific way of doing things for a very, very long time. And there definitely is a sense in, in the market, in the landscape, that all of that is changing and everybody is, is working towards the same direction. And Sparkplug, obviously, is going to play a massive key role in that. Um, well, and, and, and Jaco, the way that I look at it, you know, I do a lot of speaking, you know, at universities. Let me put it in this context. What do we have now? If I go into any customer and I go, hey, where's your SCADA engineer that knows how everything works? Oh, well, that's Joe. He sits over there in cubicle seven. 
The guy so, with all the tested knowledge in his head that if Joe disappears, yeah. nobody knows what's happening. Exactly. And so if I go to a university and I talk with their electrical engineer and, and computer science majors, and I go, how many of you, in, how many of you students, you know, if you go into industrial automation, how many of you ever have heard of OPC way? Raise your hands. Nothing. Yeah. No, Modbus, Alan Bradley DF1, raise your hands, nothing. But if I ask that same engineering uh, uh, students, how many of you have a Raspberry Pi in your dorm room? Everybody raises their hand. How many of you students are using Node Red? Everybody raises their hand. And they know that they can download the Alexa app from, from Amazon and do a, a, a rule talk to Alexa and it will send MQTT commands to the Raspberry Pi to turn an LED on and off. So my point here is that what we're promoting is a technology that's going to be widely known so that as these students come out of college and they're looking at this and go, yeah, I know how MQTT works. And it's not sequestered to just one individual or a few individuals. And I think it's the democratization of knowledge and us leveraging, you know, IT technology in general. Let's not call it IT versus OT. Let's just call it leveraging 2020 technology. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. We've we've spoken about the topic of the the brain drain or a skills shortage in the industry. We've spoken about that on a few episodes, and the and the fact that a lot of that has been created by us, the industry, the vendors, the the technology providers. You know, you expect a young person to walk out of whatever the educational institution is and you expect them to be familiar with all of these different proprietary types of technologies um, and if they're not you you sort of surprised you know you maybe have three or four different technologies available on a site um, and I think this mainstream inclusion and drive is just going to serve everybody especially the end users um, it's just going to serve everybody and especially the end users so much better and it's it's really really exciting and, and yeah. a few exciting years that we're looking forward to, I suppose, near future. Yeah. Um, so you've given us an idea of what, uh, or you've hinted at least what the near future for, for, for Spark Plug and MQTT is going to be like. What is your, what is your ultimate vision, Arlen? It doesn't sound like you are slowing down at all. In <laughs> fact, it sounds like you've probably, you've probably shifted a gear uh, over the last few years. Um, you, you've, you've achieved and accomplished so much um, for the industry as a whole. What is your, what is your ultimate vision? What, what would you feel content with over the next few years? Well, <laughs> um, again, I, there's two things you can look at here. One of the things is that I fully realize is that if everybody had an epiphany tomorrow, let, let's say, all of the industrial uh, organizations listens to your podcast this week, all of the OEMs and the whole world switches to spark plug tomorrow. We're still going to have decades of brownfield equipment that's out there. Yeah. So, you know, first and foremost is using platforms uh, like ignition, ignition edge, um, you know, maybe Aviva are going to come out with some technology. We've got, uh, Greengrass Core from Amazon. We've got Azure uh, Edge from Microsoft. So, you know, we're starting to lay the foundation in my mind already for the inclusion of brownfield and new technologies so that we can, you know, we fully understand there's no customer in the world, factory or oil and gas or any other industry 
that are going to rip out all their legacy equipment. So we've mm-hmm. got to have that part of the story. But then the other part of it is the exciting part to me is PLCs, uh, RTUs, equipment starting to come out with spark plug natively. Now, if we start combining all of that, all of a sudden we have a plug and play infrastructure that the customer gets to pick, you know, best in class devices, best in class network infrastructures, best in class backend applications. And I, I think that ultimately means that the industrial internet of things can scale at the rate that the internet of people have scaled. And it goes back to my point. Until we get to there, this will all be interesting. We'll have small niches of adoption. We'll have, you know, one industry go one, you know, that direction. But until we can get it widespread to where we quit having a conversation on how to get a piece of data from point A to point B, and the conversation is, what can we do to innovate with that piece of data? Until we can enable that HTTP. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's awesome. Cool. Um, Alan, thank you so much, sir. It's, uh, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you. I, I'm just conscious of our time. We, we're actually very close to running out of time. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was lovely chatting to you. Um, I think we, we've actually created quite a nice uh, segue for our, for our next episode next week. So next week, we're going to chat uh, with Louis van Weyck locally, who's the managing executive for IoT and OT solutions at Business Connection. Business Connection is, of course, one of our local uh, integration partners. Um, where Louis is going to share some practical use cases, feedback, and insights into what the IoT landscape looks like in South Africa. Um, and there's also definitely not an episode to miss a, a nice little segue and probably a very, very uh, hard one to follow for Louis after, after your conversation today, <laughs> Alan. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Alan, thank you so much for your time. It was really, it was incredible chatting to you. Um, thanks again. And I'm hoping we can follow it up in a few months time if you're okay with that. Yeah, that'd be great. I really appreciate the opportunity. I really enjoyed it. It's always nice sharing something positive and, and something something that's building and something that's growing with the South African audience, and uh, it, it'll be fantastic to have you in South Africa, maybe in the in the not too not too <laughs> quite well future. If, I, I would love to, yeah, as soon as we can travel again, I think I've exactly. just set a record this month on the longest time that I haven't been on an airplane. <laughs> <laughs> How much of that has changed, right? It's, it's yeah. fascinating, yeah, and, and obviously also the devastating impact that it's had on on so many lives and so many economies all over the world. So uh, we, we're hoping that that curve will flatten over the next few weeks. We're very much still in that. Um, but yeah, we, we'd love to catch up with you again in, in, in maybe a few months' time, and uh, we'll follow the progression of Sparkplug and these incredible initi- initiatives. We'll follow that closely and. Uh, we, we, we're on board with that. And, and thank you so much for all the hard work that you've been doing and, and just progressing uh, our industrial lives for the better. Thanks, guys. Awesome. We'll uh, chat with you next week. Lenny, anything else from your side? Um, no, I just want to maybe tell our listeners if they've got any suggestions on the podcast. Um, I always forget that. Don't <laughs> Thanks for reminding me. They can send us an email at podcast at eliminate.co.za. Any suggestions, any topics, uh, potentially even um, people that they would like us to, to have on our show, please send out those, those suggestions and, and we'll, we'll definitely incorporate that into our, into, our, into our schedule. Fantastic. 
Thanks, everyone. That was uh, this episode of the Human and Machine Podcast. We'll catch you next week. Thanks very much. Cheers, everybody.